This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We will begin on page 987 in the Bibles in your rows, if you'd like to follow along as I read. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. Let's pray uh, as we begin. Father, um, your love for us surpasses all our hopes and desires. We ask that you, even as we prayed earlier in the service, that you would forgive our sins and our failings. Would you strengthen us when we're weak? Would you keep us in your peace? And uh, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been uh, studying together uh, 1 Thessalonians this fall. And, uh, you know, the truth is the last couple of weeks, I haven't had to work that hard to keep you interested. Uh, Last week's topic was sex, which is not always the most comfortable of conversations, but it's certainly not an uninteresting one. And uh, today uh, we're talking about death which is uh, a topic of universal relevance. And this is why in in verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be uninformed because this is something we all need to know. This is something we'll all have to deal with. And, And some of you know this acutely, right? You've dealt with the loss of people close to you, maybe even very recently. Some of you are feeling very much in the thick of the grieving process. And uh, for those who may haven't had to deal with death recently, maybe at all in their life, I'm sorry to have to say to you that you will. I can say without fear of contradiction that there is going to be a lot of death in your future, a lot of funerals in your future, and ultimately there will be a funeral where you're at the center of attention. Last I checked, the death rate is one to one, right? All of us, all of us will deal with this. So this is really important. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I heard somebody describe uh, grief and hope as something like siblings uh, who share a room, except in your soul and your mind, right? Like siblings who have a room. And best case scenario, right, siblings acknowledge one another, they relate well with one another, they're respectful of one another, they share the space equally, but we know there's the ideal and there's the real, right? Right? And often what happens, right, is things don't work out so easily. One uh, of the siblings becomes dominant for a time. The other sort of shrinks away. Very often there's a flip at some point, and the other pushes back, and the first one recedes into the background. And so it is very often with grief and hope in our life. Or, or maybe to put, uh, you know, even more on the nose, 
Grief and hope can be like a timeshare in your soul, right? You know what a timeshare is? There's multiple owners, right? But they're never there at the same time. They never inhabit the space at the same time. One moves in, the other moves out. They alternate, but there's very little interaction between them. And that's often how it can seem with grief and hope in our life. When grief takes over, hope doesn't seem to have a place there at all. We feel stuck. We feel crushed. We even use the term hopeless. It's a really dark place to be in. Some of you know that. Or perhaps we think that holding on to hope requires that we stuff our grief or deny it altogether, but that tends to short-circuit dealing with loss. It can make us cold and callous to the sufferings of others, and it sets us up for cruel disillusionment when grief eventually moves back in. And so this morning, I want to talk about how those things can go together, how grief and hope can sort of exist within the same space where we're neither being crushed under grief without hope, nor do we have a shallow avoidance minimizing grief. How does Christianity give us a vision for grieving with hope? That's what I want to talk about this morning. So the first big heading we'll just call good grief, which is Charlie Brown, I know, right? Uh, But Paul would want us to know there is such a thing as good grief. Verse 13, notice Paul does not say, don't grieve. He doesn't say, don't grieve. He also doesn't say, instead of grief, I want you to have hope. But rather, he says, I don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. Or if we put it positively, what Paul is saying is, I want you to grieve hopefully. I want you to grieve hopefully. And that phrase there in verse 13, I, want, I don't want you to grieve as others who have no hope. If you read that, it can sound pretty negative. Uh, it can sound maybe even a little harsh to those who are outside the Christian faith. But you have to understand here, this is um, comparative language. You know, there's a place uh, where Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, when Jesus says that, does he mean that you literally have to hate your spouse? Do you literally have to hate your parents in order to follow him? No, he's saying, right, in comparison, there shouldn't be any love that you have, any commitment that you have in this world that's anywhere close to the love that you have for God. And so Paul's not saying, you know, that no one outside the Christian faith has any hope in their life at all, but he is saying Christianity offers a unique hope. Christianity offers a robust hope. And you have to remember that In the Greco-Roman world, people were at best ambivalent about life after death, right? In Paul's day, pagan religions, Greek, Greece, and Rome, right? There was some question, right? Is there a life after death? Is it even a good place to go? And those were kind of open questions. And the gods themselves, the ones who would that you'd be praying to or or putting your hope in to get to this life after death. The gods themselves were capricious and hard to please. How can you stay on their good side, right? They're so fickle and unpredictable. There's no conviction or certainty with regard to what happens in death, which led to a grief without hope, at least comparatively speaking. Now, what about today? What about today? How do people grieve 
in our world today. You know, for some, the, the sheer awfulness of death right, is such a strong reality that, that we're crushed by despair and hopelessness. Grief has moved in. Hope has moved out. And we're stuck in our grieving. Right? There's no process, really. We're just there. Right? That's the state, permanent state, or so it seems. And life begins to lose its color. And sometimes life doesn't even seem worth living at all. Others deal with death and loss by embracing a kind of hedonism, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow will die. This was uh, Albert Camus' approach. This is the existentialist approach. Even Camus admitted, though, this left him empty in the end. He said, uh, because I longed for eternal life. I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. In the morning, to be sure, my mouth was filled with the bitter taste of the mortal state. Others adopt a kind of stoicism, right? They acknowledge that death is indeed horrible, but the advice then is just to grin and bear it, right? Put your head down and and keep a stiff upper lip and just power through. An ancient example of this was in the Iliad where Achilles tells the father of the fallen Hector, bear up. He's lost his son. Bear up. Nothing will come of sorrowing for your son, there's all kinds of modern versions of this that say, look, you know, death is horrible. Death is the end, and I wish it wasn't, but that's it. And so grieving, ultimately, it makes no difference. It's a waste of time. It doesn't help a thing. It is what it is. Deal with it and move on. But if you take this approach, head down, power through, you cut short, perhaps even bypass altogether the grieving process and perhaps end up killing off a part of yourself in the process in order to survive. I think maybe the most popular secular advice today counsels us to just not think of death as a very bad thing, right? We just shouldn't, if you go get a brochure maybe from a, a counseling office or if you were to uh, go to Joseph Beth and buy a, a self-help book that talks about how to talk to somebody about death or how to view death yourself, uh, more than likely it's going to give the advice that death is not bad. We just need to reframe are thinking about it. Death is a perfectly natural part of the cycle of life. We tell ourselves death is natural. It's just a part of life. It's nothing to be afraid of. Our bodies will go back to the earth and enrich the grass and the trees and the other animals when we die. Eventually, we'll all become stardust. We come back into the universe. That's okay. That's the consolation. But does that help, really? Is that satisfying to you? I mean, is that all that you think we are? Stardust? Plant food? And does that fit your experience of what it's like to lose someone who's made an impact on your life? To lose someone who's been a big part of your life? Uh, Peter Kreeft, a philosophy professor at Boston College, he uh, tells a story about some friends a couple who were friends of his who were not religious people, and they had a seven-year-old little boy who uh, they lost their uh, three-year-old cousin who had died. And so they uh, sat down and, and tried to comfort their son, talk to them about the death of his cousin, and they had read the brochures, right, and they were prepared to give the, the talk. And so they said to him many of those things that I was just saying to you, right, death is perfect, perfectly natural, and this isn't a bad thing. We, we, we all go there, and, and when you die, your body goes to the earth. It enriches the earth and the other things that grow. And remember, we showed you the Lion King, and we sang the circle of life, right? And 
This wasn't a comfort to their son. Surprisingly, to them anyway, the little boy ran out of the room screaming, I don't want my cousin to be fertilizer. And Peter Kreef said, the boy was right. His reaction was the more natural one. Death is terrible. Because we're more than that. We're more than fertilizer. We're more than stardust. And the Apostle Paul would say that all these approaches I just surveyed for you, none of them are what the Christian hope is about. He says, I I don't want you to grieve as those without hope. I do want you to grieve, hopefully. I do want you to grieve in a Jesus way. And what does that look like? What does grieving in the way of Jesus look like? Well, we get a, a picture in the Gospels in John chapter 11 of Jesus at the tomb of a friend. He's at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, and he's there with Mary and Martha. And Jesus knows that he's about to do something spectacular. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But that's not what he does first. When he gets there, when he gets to the tomb, he sees Mary in her tears at the loss of her brother. The text simply says in John eleven thirty five 35, that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And he doesn't say to Mary, Mary, stiff up her lip. Mary, put your head down and power through. Mary, it's not that bad. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say, Mary, just wait a few moments and you'll get to see the payoff here. You'll get to see what I'm going to do. No. He simply joins her in her grief. Because Jesus knows to be cut off from the ones we love is a truly terrible thing. There's no explaining that away. There's no shoving that down. Death is something to be grieved and lamented. Sorrow is the right response to death and loss. It also says when Jesus got up close to the tomb, when he got near the grave, it says in John eleven thirty eight, he was deeply moved. And the English translations kind of mute this a little, but literally it says he snorted with rage. Again, when Jesus got to the tomb, he didn't just tell himself, all right, death is a part of life, death is a part of life, cycle of life. No, he's angry at death. Why? Well, because this is not how things are supposed to be. Death, in the Christian story, we're told, uh, is because, comes in because of sin and evil. It was not God's design. You were not made to shrivel up and go away. You were created to bear the image of the living God and to continue bearing the image of the living God more and more growing into his likeness. We were not made to lose the people we love. Death is a hateful intruder into God's good world. And so Jesus weeps and is angry at the monstrosity of death because it is a deep distortion of the creation that he loves. Paul never says, don't grieve. He says, grieve differently. Grieve differently than those who have no hope. Last week we said, right, that this is part of a larger section where Paul is calling Christians to be compellingly different, we said. That was our phrase last week. To be compellingly different than the world around us, at least in a few key areas. And this is one of those key areas. We grieve differently. We are to grieve in a Jesus way. You know, in another place, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. One of the best books that I 
read in seminary is a little book called Lament for a Son. Small little book, you can kind of tell. Not very long. I encourage you to get it at some point. It's uh, by a, a professor at Yale a University, a, a man by the name Nicholas Wolterstorff. Lament for a Son. And he, uh, he lost his son in a mountain climbing accident. And so the book is a series of journal entries written during the first year after his son's death. And one of those entries was trying to apply the words of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn. I'll, I'll just read it to you. He said, who then are the mourners? The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, and who break out into tears when confronted with his absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is no one blind and who ache whenever they see someone unseen. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one hungry and who ache whenever they see someone starving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one falsely accused and who ache whenever they see someone imprisoned unjustly. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one who fails to see God and who ache whenever they see someone unbelieving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one who suffers oppression and who ache whenever they see someone beat down. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one without dignity and who ache whenever they see someone treated with indignity. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is neither death nor tears and who ache whenever they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are aching visionaries. Such people, Jesus blesses, he hails them, he praises them, he salutes them, and he gives them the promise that the new day for, the, for whose absence they ache will come and they will be comforted. The Stoics of antiquity said, be calm, disengage yourself, neither laugh nor weep, but Jesus says, be open to the wounds of the world. Mourn humanity's mourning, weep over humanity's weeping, be wounded by humanity's wounds, be in agony over humanity's agony, but do so in the good cheer that the day of peace is coming. There is such a thing as good grief. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And so Paul says, I want you to grieve, hopefully. Another way to say it is, we are meant to mix in hope with our grief. We're meant to mix hope in with our grief. You know, before there was refrigeration, you had to mix salt in with the meat in order to keep it from going bad, right? That's how you would keep, that's how you would preserve things. You would mix salt in to keep the meat from going bad. And Paul's saying you have to rub hope in so your grief doesn't go bad. Well, how do we do that? What is the Christian hope that we're to mix in with our grief? Well, it's right there in verse 14. The very next verse, Paul writes, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And the theologian N.T. Wright says, If you squeeze the letters of Paul, resurrection is what comes out. If you squeeze the letters of Paul, resurrection is what comes out. The Christian hope is the resurrection of the dead. First, that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the Easter story. But then the promise that he will bring others with him in the end, that we will rise from the dead. 
Let's keep reading. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now the context here is that the Thessalonians have heard when Paul was with them, right? he's preaching to them the gospel, and he tells them that Jesus has died and rose again, and that one day he's going to come and he's going to make all things new. They know this. They've heard this. But as they're waiting for this to happen, they're waiting for Jesus, some of their people begin to die, their friends, their spouses, their mothers and fathers, even their children. And they're wondering, are these people that we love so dearly, are they going to miss out on all that Jesus is going to do when he comes again? It's a question born of love. It's a question coming from grief. And Paul consoles them by saying, he says, no, Those who have died and know Jesus Christ are in no way going to miss out. In fact, they're going to get a place right smack dab in the middle of what Jesus is going to do when he returns. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Not only will those who have died not miss out, They're going to rise first. They're going to get the best seats for what Jesus is going to do at the end. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are still left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, I want to stop here and just linger on this verse for just a little minute, because if you grew up in a certain kind of church background, you might have some ideas floating around in your mind that are not exactly what this text is teaching. If you've read any of the end times novels that were so popular in uh, the latter half of the 20th century, or if you've seen Left Behind movies or anything like that, you've probably encountered the term rapture. It actually comes from this verse, and a few others like it in the New Testament. The Greek word is harpazo, Literally, it means to be caught up, to be snatched up, to be taken up. The Latin word for this is rapio, which is where we get rapture. There's a whole theology of rapture that has grown up around this idea. Some of it is depicted in those end times novels. The truth is most of it is highly speculative and goes way beyond what Scripture teaches. What does Paul actually say here is going to happen? He says, number one, at the end, Jesus is going to come back. That's the biggest truth. Number two, he says when he does, he's not going to come in a hidden way. He's not going to come this time in a manger in Bethlehem. He's going to come uh, descending from heaven like the true king that he is. And then number three, he says the good news is that God's people are going to join him in this, that as he comes back to earth, the dead are going to rise, those still alive are going to join him, and then he's going to make all things new. What's so important to get is that the words that Paul uses in this passage, a little obscure to us in English, but in Greek, they would have made all the sense in the world in the first century because the words that you use for a royal procession, they're the words that you use for a royal parade. When the emperor would come to town, when the king would come to town, the people of honor in that city or in that village would ride out to meet the emperor. 
They would greet him like dignitaries, and then they would join the royal procession. The gates would open, and they would enter back in, right? They would join the emperor. They would join the royal parade and ride back into the city. That's what Paul is describing here. That's the image that Paul is giving us here. When Jesus returns, he's going to give the command, verse 16, Right? Think of the command that he gives to Lazarus at the tomb. Right, Lazarus, come out, except this time it's not going to be for one person, but it's going to be for all who have died in Christ. Just as in the beginning of Scripture, God speaks life with a word. Here Jesus speaks life at the end with a word, a cry of command, power over death. The archangel then calls out, the trumpet blasts, and the dead in Christ will be raised. And then he says, then those with, who are alive will join with them. All those in Christ, dead and alive, will go out to meet Jesus. This is the royal procession, right? But not leaving earth, but coming to it. All those who belong to him will go out and meet Jesus as he comes down to make all things new, to bring the kingdom in its fullness. We won't be raptured away from reality, but we'll be caught up to meet Jesus and join the parade as he comes back to redeem reality as he comes to make all things new. This is the hope that Paul offers to the Thessalonians. Those who have died in Christ will not miss out on anything. And if you are in Christ and you are facing death, you won't miss anything either. But the greatest consolation of all this is that we get to be with Christ. Verse 17, that's the note he lands on, and so we will be with or so we will be with always with the Lord. Excuse me. So we will be always with the Lord. We'll be with him. And we'll be there together. There'll be a great rejoicing, a great gathering of all God's people in this great procession. It'll be a grand reunion. Back to verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's what we're meant to mix in with our grief. Jesus rose from the dead, and at the end, he's going to call forth all those who belong to him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death, and everything is different because he has done so. That's what we are meant to mix in with our grief. That's what we need to work into our sorrow. That he has met, fought, and beaten the king of death, and everything is different because he has done so. We're to mix that in with our grief. And that's what Paul means here at the end in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Take these truths and work them into your life and help each other do the same. Paul says we're to grieve, but to grieve, hopefully. And as we close, I'll just say this. Because we are made in the image of God, right? Because we are made in the image of a relational God, a loving God. We're made for loving relationships. The greatest commandment, right, is to love God and to love others. Life is about love, and so for that reason... When our relationships of love are interrupted by death, this is an awful thing. Paul calls it an enemy, right? The death is the last enemy, but it doesn't get the last word. 
Death doesn't get the victory. Christian hope in the face of death is not about denying the awfulness of death. It's not about deadening ourselves to loss and therefore minimizing grief. But Christian hope in the face of death is that death doesn't have the last word. Because Christ who died lives again and one day he's going to raise us from the dead. And we'll enter into the kingdom of God. Now if you believe that, what is there that you can't face now? If you believe that, doesn't that mix hope in with a very real grief? of having lost somebody that you love. If you believe this, doesn't it give you courage as you face down your own mortality and your own death? If you believe this, can't you engage with the wounds of this world with the hope that one day all things will be made new? One of the greatest expressions of Christian hope in literature is a poem by George Herbert called A Dialogue Anthem. It's a dialogue between a Christian and, and death. It's a little bit of a taunt. It's like um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 where he's saying, uh, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And here's how George Herbert uh, portrays this dialogue. The Christian says, Alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? And death replies, Alas, poor mortal, void of story. Go spell and read how I have killed thy king. Christian says, poor death, and who has hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. Death says, let losers talk, yet thou shalt die. These arms shall crush thee. To which the Christian says, spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more. The Christian looks at death. And says, spare not, do thy worst, hit me with your best shot. The lower you lay me, the higher he'll raise me. Because Jesus Christ, who died, has risen again. And because of that, everything, everything, everything is different. Death will not get the last word, nor pain, nor sorrow. The tears are real. But the tears, one day, he will wipe away. And one day, if we belong to Jesus, we will join in the royal procession, the royal parade, as he comes to make all things new. We are to grieve, but to do so with hope. Let's pray, and then we're going to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. After we sing, the band will lead us in another song, but let's pray. Our Father, Jesus is our hope in life and death. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death, and because of that, everything is different. And so we ask that you would help us to grieve those that we've lost, hopefully. And would you give us courage as we face our own mortality, as we face our own death? And would you strengthen us now for the trials and the tribulations that you have before us? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.